The song, you can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant, composed by Arlo Guthrie and released in 1967, was not a song about Alice or her restaurant. It is a song that exposed the hypocrisy of the U.S. government's position as it related to the Vietnam War. We here at Solutions to Violence and our guest today, Francesco da Vinci, understand the hypocrisy as evident by our stands against violence and evident by da Vinci's stand against the Vietnam War and the fact that da Vinci was willing to go to jail rather than serve in a military that was waging an immoral war. Welcome, friends. We are Forward Radio, WFMPLP, 106.5 FM. I'm Jamie McMillan, here with co-host Jim Johnson. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of our guests, not the station. If you would like to share your views, you may contact us by sending us an email to solutionstoviolence18 at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. If you enjoyed last week's broadcast, you know you're going to enjoy our broadcast today. Our guest today is Francesco da Vinci, a Los Angeles-based journalist, book author, and nonviolent activist. As a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War, he was threatened with a five-year prison term for refusing induction. After three years on appeal, he won his case the same year that Muhammad Ali won his case in 1971. Raised by pacifist parents, Francesco felt held to take a stand against the war. He also founded Nonviolent Action, NVA, in 1970, a peace campaign in San Diego, and another, the draft project that reached the halls of Congress with the help of Senator George McGovern. As the Vietnam War escalated in 1960s, so did Francesco Vincey activism against violence. In the late 60s, Francesco participated in the March on Pentagon Poor People's Campaign and the March at People's Park at San Diego. He helped organize the Veterans Moratorium. In 1968, Vincey filed for conscientious objector status. While his CO case was on appeal, he worked with farm work, then founded a peace organization group in San Diego called Nonviolent Action. Today, Francesco speaks on the urgent need to counter systems of violence by developing a peace economy and building a culture of nonviolence. His suggestions for nonviolent action are aimed at both the individual and societal levels. In his talks, Francesco reminds us that we can't become immobilized in these difficult and divided times. Achieving solutions start with each of us in our own microcosm. Even simply daily acts of kindness add up. If we take that attitude, then as Gandhi said, each of us can be the change. Francesco has published his book, I Refuse to Kill, My Path to Nonviolent Action in the 1960s. It documents his conscientious objection and honors COs throughout American history. Welcome, Francesco. Thank you. Francesco, we met last on the Solutions to Violence uh, a little over a year ago, in August of 2020. Uh, that time you told us that you were working on a book. You have since published that book. The title, as I mentioned uh, in your bio, is I Refuse to Kill My Path to Nonviolent Action in the 60s. And here it is. Thank you. But uh, I was there. work. <laughs> and I've enjoyed reading it. So why did you feel you needed to write this book? Well, I was going through a major stress facing the draft and facing the war. And it was really on a personal level, therapeutic for me to put everything down. I never thought it would be a book, but it was important to me to document 
my life in the 60s. And later, I decided, you know, with everything I went through, I wanted to honor conscientious objectors. And I found out that very few people understood what conscientious objectors were and how, how much they sacrificed to take their stand for nonviolence. I mean, they were slandered. Uh, they were tortured. They were sent to the worst prisons uh, in America and even uh, killed sometimes. So I thought it was way overdue that we honor these people that, for their bravery. Uh-huh. Change directions a little bit here. The Selective Service System was created by President Franklin Roosevelt in 1940 for the purpose of running a peacetime draft. The Selective Service Act of 1948 set up many of the regulations and deferments used during the Vietnam era. And that era lasted until 1969. The Selective Service Act became known as quote, the draft, end quote. And it was enforced by President Richard Nixon. For our listeners who did not live through the 60s or the 70s, give us an idea of what the draft meant to an 18-year-old who grew up in that era. Well, it was very scary stuff. I mean, the war was raging, you know, from 1964. Ironically, LBJ came in as a peace candidate, but immediately escalated the war. So my generation felt deceived, number one. Number two, the draft was there, and the message essentially was your life is not your own. And he had talked about all these great social programs that he was going to implement. And then it was, uh, they were you know, mitigated they were by the, the war that he constantly escalated. So you know, as an 18-year-old, you had to think, well, am I going to Vietnam? I'm totally against the draft, but one positive effect that it had for me, a silver lining, was that it forced me to look at my values and to articulate my beliefs in nonviolence. I was raised with a pacifist family, but I never thought about putting down on paper, you know, what my views were and, our, and having a real sense of what I really stood for. So um, the process began with, you know, you have to register with the draft at 18 and they threaten you. At that time, it was a, they threaten you with a $10,000 fine and or five years in prison. So, uh, and I registered late. So uh, I was under the gun, so to speak, and uh, I registered. And then I I began to clarify for myself about what I really believed in. And I had to ask myself, you know, are you really willing to be trained to kill in the military? Are you willing to fight in this war that at best looks misguided? So I had been raised with a big conflict inside. I had turmoil because in my family, it was a pacifist family, we were taught to look at everyone in the world as essentially one family. Yeah, there were draft age young men who were, for various reasons, claimed that they would not serve in the military and and be trained to kill because of their religious beliefs or or some non-religious set of ethics. You were one of those youngsters who cited non-religious set uh, of ethics. You claimed the status of CO, conscientious objector. Draft dodger was a derogatory term that, that developed to identify the young people who, who did not want to serve uh, and kill. But there is a formal term identifying the draft dodger. And that was very different from what those, that derogatory term. What, what was that difference? Well, it was used really to slander conscientious objectors. And the public was totally confused about the concept because if you applied as a conscientious objector, you were doing the opposite of dodging the draft. Because let's be clear, you know, 
when you faced the draft, you had the choice of you could you could go to Canada, you could fake your way out of the draft. But if you were a conscientious objector, you faced the draft head on. You had to clarify to your draft board how sincere you were about your beliefs. And if they did not recognize you at your draft board, you willingly went to prison. That's not draft dodging. So today, to this day, people still associate conscientious objection with draft dodging. Often people would say to me when they heard I was a CEO, they would say, well, how did you get out of it? Because they think it's evading the draft, but it isn't. It's facing it straight on. And like I said, you willingly go to prison if you're not recognized. Right. What difference did that have to do with the choice that you made about the Vietnam War? Well, the thing that made it particularly difficult with uh, me making this choice for the Vietnam War was that my philosophy that I had to relate to my draft board was non-religious but spiritual. And that was outside the box of my Virginia draft board, which, you know, let me uh, make a statement here about the inherent unfairness of the draft in regard to where you're geographically from. Because if you're from, you know, uh, a liberal politically area, say like the Bay Area of San Francisco, uh, you have a much better chance of being recognized as a CEO than you do in the South or a draft board like mine in Virginia that was strongly pro-war. So there's an inherent unfairness about where you're from. So when I had to present to my draft board that my religion was essentially spiritual but non-religious, it was so unconventional to them that they looked at it in terms of Christianity, period, and then second, uh, the teachings of Jesus, and, and also how often you went to church. So if you were outside those parameters, it was very difficult. Your case was twice as hard. Right. Well, just to clarify, Jim and I are both in that, and you're the same generation. We uh-huh. experienced a lot of that. As a matter of fact, when I went to register for the, the draft, the selective service, I was confronted by the lady who's in charge uh, because she said I was late and she threatened to to, uh, <laughs> to draft me right there. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> she, she had me going, but she didn't. Wow. She didn't draft. Can I, I would like to add something to, that was uh, on the humorous note with this. You know, if you did belong to an organized religion, like I said, you had a better chance of being recognized. So my parents didn't want to see me to go to prison, and they wanted me to manipulate my way out of the draft or go to Canada, like my, my girlfriend felt the same way. But my dad would constantly, or she, he said, you know, you've got an Italian last name, Francesco da Vinci, you know, everybody's going to assume you're a Catholic. So why don't you temporarily become Catholic? <laughs> but I, yeah. didn't, I didn't do it. But anyhow, that's what we were faced with. Yeah. So the other causes are options for potential draftees to obtain a deferment and classification as a CEO. What are some of those other options? Well, you had student deferment. There were a lot of people that wanted to ride out the draft with a student deferment, keep delaying, delaying, delaying. And then at 26, you're no longer eligible for the draft. But again, this is another example of how CEOs take a, a strong stand. If you apply as a CEO, people, my draft board even said to me in when I had the interview, which is more like an interrogation, they said, uh, aren't you taking the easy way out as a CEO? You know, there's nothing harder than going through the Alice in Wonderland process of CEO. So, you know, when I stated all my beliefs and I said, I'm giving up my student deferment to make this stand, Richard Dreyfuss, the actor, did the same thing. He was a conscientious objector as well. 
And when Richard and I applied as COs while going to college, it's like tearing your student deferment in half, you know, and tearing it up and throwing it away because you're risking prison. So mm-hmm. students deferment was a, another one. I've, I've got to tell you this story that this is a true story with my brother because the options were, you know, you could stall the draft board and the lawyer, many of the lawyers, they were dedicated, they volunteered for free and they didn't want to see these young men going to prison, going to war that they didn't believe in. And so they would give free draft counseling. They would help sometimes uh, for people to stall. That's not conscientious objection, of course, but they would help many people. And some people like my brother, they would uh, fake their way out. And my brother uh, pretended to be psychotic for the draft board. And we were at a restaurant and my brother announces to me, he says, why don't you be sensible and do what I do because I'm going to get a psychiatric and I said, you're kidding. He said, no, no, I've got this, got this down. And in the middle of the restaurant, he stands up and he tilts his head sideways and he starts switching his eyes and he turns in a slow circle. And now everybody in the restaurant is staring at him. And, you know, it was like an Academy Award performance. And he did get his deferment that way. But, uh, you know, it, it was uh, that was my brother. And that was the way he and a lot of other CEO, uh, not CEOs, but uh, people fake their way out. But the CEOs took the stand and were direct with their draft board on their philosophy of nonviolence, even at the risk of prison. Well, what was the process for applying and, and being approved by as a CEO? Well, you, you had to state your beliefs, which is very hard. You know, a lot of us carry our beliefs inside, but if we were asked to articulate verbally or to put them down on paper, it's not an easy thing to do. And an amusing thing about the old CO form in Virginia and the early ones, 150 form it was called, was the draft boards made it in black and white. And the lead question was like, do you believe in God? Yes or no? (laughs) You know, they oversimplify these complex things because they saw things in black and white. So it wasn't easy. And the other thing you would do is you would cite, you would get letters of support from people that knew you to attest the sincerity of your beliefs. And the other thing was they would ask you like influences, whether your parents were an influence or what your role models were. And in my case, you know, they, in Virginia, they wanted to hear the likes of Robert E. Lee. But in my case, it was Gandhi and Einstein and Cesar Chavez and Dr. King. And uh, none of these people went over big with my Virginia draft board. So again, that made uh, the case difficult. But those were the kinds of things you had to do to be recognized as a CEO. And one thing I learned if somebody really disagreed with you, but they said they recognized you were sincere, like my best buddy served in the Navy in Vietnam, he knew how sincere I was, and he wrote a letter of support. And of course, that's usually more helpful because the draft board sees that even though this person disagrees with you, obviously you're sincere about your beliefs. Okay, so let's uh, bring this back into the 21st century, this discussion here. Since the military draft was briefly considered by some as support for the U.S. war in Iraq and Afghanistan. The draft seems to have been dropped from consideration, at least for the current military engagements. What do you think of efforts to bring back the draft? And why do you think it's failed to gain any traction in Congress, at least at at this point? Well, in my view, the draft was wrong in the past. The draft is wrong in the present and it's wrong in the future. We need to abolish it, in my view because it's basically a system of involuntary servitude. And that's clearly 
undemocratic and un-American. You know, we stand for individual freedom and the draft is the, the opposite. So I say, get rid of involuntary servitude, especially, you know, considering all the un- injustice that was done to minorities during from the 60s on who didn't really weren't familiar with the draft laws, who is really, uh, you need legal counsel, but especially minorities, they were used way beyond proportion in the front lines of Vietnam. They were drafted. They didn't know their rights. And, you know, here's a, a sad and tragic fact, but in Vietnam, the deaths that happened, 61% of those killed in Vietnam were under the age of 21. And, you know, to think about the draft forcing people to be trained to kill when it again would you know many it was against their their basic beliefs were to fight in a misguided war like Vietnam, you know it's a it's a national tragedy. So hopefully you know we need to learn from that and not to try to reform the draft. The best thing we can do with the draft is to abolish it once and for all. In my view. Yeah, but Francesco, you know, there there are some liberals, in fact, who claim maybe we should bring the draft back because when there is a draft here in this country, people are much more aware of the war that's going on and much more likely to oppose that war. And that'll bring people out into the streets and there will be demonstrations and the demonstrations may lead to, like eventually happened in Vietnam, stopping the war. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up because that's an excellent point. Uh, and uh, as a peace activist in the 60s, I, I heard this argument many times. And my counter was, you know, I don't, I don't think we should be willing to sacrifice lives for the sake of politicizing people. So uh, my feeling is, you know, recognize it, that it's inherently uh, taking lives, that uh, unnecessary lives, and that's why we should abolish the draft. You know, it's means and ends again. You know, some people say like, okay, if it helps the cause and a bigger picture, bring back the draft. And then, but the cost of that is people are drafted against their will and they end up dying in a war that they don't believe in. So for my, my own position is don't use the draft to politicize people. Okay, okay. But now we see the success of the Me Too movement another women's rights campaign for equal rights, women who have won the right to serve in the military with equal opportunities for advancement, specialties training, and, and more. As any male recruit, combat jobs and training is not excluded for women. With these changes, there has been some debate about the need for a, quote, a change of culture, end quote, as Elizabeth Torball points out in her book, Join Force Quarterly, 88. With within all branches of the military. So what do you think of the efforts to bring back the draft and expand it to women? That's what's now happening in Congress. Yeah, well, I think, of course, women should have the right to serve, but I don't believe in the draft, period. So when people talk about reforming the draft or bringing women in, you know, I, I think it's the big picture is to get rid of the draft. But of course, we still have a long way to go for women's rights in general, not just in terms of the military, but equal opportunity. We're still, you know, we've got a long way to go. And I don't support the draft as a modified draft. One thing I think we ought to be aware of is that the selective service system, the draft, in other words, 
is using this banner of women's rights to entice women to uh, have by the myth that if you're a strong woman, you know, you go into the military and that'll show that you're a strong woman. You know, they're using that uh, the women's rights cause to increase enrollment in the military and in the draft. So I think we ought to be aware of that. But of course, women should have the right to serve, but uh, I'm against the draft in general. So in 2015, uh, the U.S. Army Training Doctrine Command Analysis Center published gender integration study. Quote, male soldiers are afraid of lower physical standards, increased sexual assault and harassment, reduced readiness, and destruction of the masculine culture, our brotherhood. Oh, my uh, God. Yeah. So... However, Excuse me, Jim, uh, while I roll my eyes. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I hear you. But much of what is discussed here goes beyond the thoughts and attitudes about women integrating into jobs and previously closed military occupational specialties. A resource here that we're using is Women Regardless, Understanding Gender Bias, in U.S. Military Integration by Elizabeth Torbor, National Defense University Press. So what are your thoughts on the place of women in the military now, women that are there serving, serving their country? Well, this notion of destroying the masculinity culture of brotherhood, you know, is outrageous. You know, this has been the problem. Uh, this boys club mentality, you know, this is what keeps women subjugated. I, I admire Ruth Bader Ginsburg so much for bringing attention to this. And I love her quote when she says, oh, well, if you'd like to help us, uh, start by taking your foot off our necks. <laughs> you know, you know, it, it's this this boys club stuff is is should be way in the past. We're still dealing with it now. And the idea is equality. You know, that's what it's so basic. It's hard to understand why we're still grappling with this, this culture of brotherhood and the, the boys club stuff. You know, let it go. It was a mistake in the past. It's a mistake now. So let's, let's uh, progress, you know. It uh, took a, as long as uh, 1920 before women had the, even had the right to vote, you know. So let's, let's move on. And this reminds me, you know, of the, the kind of uh, stuff that the COs have gone through, you know, with, uh, the, you know, the image stuff about not being manly enough, you know, as a CO was painted as weak and cowardly and sissy, uh, this, and the military was painted as super macho. And this is all myth stuff, you know, so let's move past it and uh, look at brothers and sisters as equals. Yeah, what, what point did you select nonviolence as a cause in, in your life? Well, the draft certainly was a big wake-up call for me. In the beginning, I went from total bystander. I was raised in a wealthy family. I was oblivious to social issues. I was raised in a segregated neighborhood. I don't think I ever saw one black in my high school in four years in Virginia. So the draft was like a wake-up call for me to start thinking about these issues, social justice and the drafting were the larger issues. And, you know, the civil rights and the peace movement, I looked at them a little bit like, you know, these people are making trouble in the beginning. And then I saw all this made sense and I started to study nonviolence. So I would say the draft was a was a big wake up call. And it made me realize that, you know, what have I been doing to help? Nothing. And if you're silent, you're really complicit with the problems. Another factor was um, when you asked about nonviolence coming in and my change, Vietnam was the first war that was widely televised. 
and it mm. brought the horrors of the war right into our living rooms, right? And uh, so, you know, it was no longer just the PR glorification of war. There were the horrors, you know, you saw children uh, that were napalmed, etc. And then another influence for me personally was Dr. King and Muhammad Ali. I mean, Dr. King had the guts to stand up and say, I encourage, let's encourage conscientious objection in our young people. And he took the heat for that. You know, he was, oh, he was viciously attacked for that. Uh, even people that were in the civil rights movement, many of them turned against him for making that kind of a statement. And then yeah, Muhammad Andrew Ali, Young. what's that? Andrew Young, yeah. Yeah, Andrew Young. Director of NAACP. Exactly. And uh, Muhammad Ali in 1967, when he refused induction in Houston, you know, look at the hate that he experienced. They took away his heavyweight title that he earned, you know, this crazy. And he made that tremendous sacrifice. He faced a five-year prison term and he stayed with it. Those two individuals, brave individuals, were uh, role models for me, and they influenced me. And, you know, they one big thing, you know, we have to realize when people take those kind of stands, those are the people that make saying no to war honorable. And that's what we need, more of a culture today that says saying no to war can be honorable. You know, it's not just the myth of, oh, they're a shirker. Let's not make those assumptions. And Dr. King and Muhammad Ali, you know, if young people are looking for models, those are two great individuals to study today. Sure. You became a conscientious objector, much about pacifism and nonviolence. How do you apply that nonviolence to your life in the 60s and the 70s? Well, How I did start, you relate yeah. to that cause of nonviolence today? Sure. Well, um, I, you know, Gandhi would always say, start with yourself. You know, he said, I, I won't wait to convert the whole of society to my point of view. I'll straight away make a beginning with myself. So I had to look at myself in the mirror. And then I started reading about nonviolence. And I read Gandhi's autobiography, etc. And I saw basic principles that made a lot of sense to me, like one of the most valuable, I think, principles in nonviolence is means and ends, you know, make the way you do something just as important as what you want. And so if we apply that to an individual level and to a national level, I mean, it makes all it invalidates all our invasion wars around the world, you know, because we talk about peace and spreading democracy. Well, you know, we've got to make it consistent with our ideals. And that's a direct contradiction. And then I started speaking out in classes. That was one way I applied it. At, I was going to the University of Maryland. But you got to remember in those times, uh, as you uh, you full well know, I'm sure it was so polarized. There was a lot of hate out there. And if you spoke against the war in the beginning of the 60s, you know, mid 60s, boy, you were ostracized like nobody's business. I remember I was in classes of like over 100 students, and I would be the only one calling for an immediate withdrawal from Vietnam. And there were all kinds of names I was called for doing that. So um, Thank you. that was that was a uh, you know, it was very scary at first. I can remember sweaty palms and all that to do it. But gradually, you know, when you assert who you really are and make your words and your thoughts and your actions harmonious, uh, you would develop self-confidence. And it made me stronger as a nonviolent activist eventually. Right. Called a communist and any number. Yeah. Of yeah. Commie Pinko, all that. Yeah. And, you know, Joan Bias has a great quote. She said, you know, about uh, when people deride nonviolence as being impractical and all that. She said, you know, nonviolence is a flop. The only bigger flop is violence. Mm -hmm. So there are many lessons here, Francesco, for many of us. We have learned 
from the events surrounding the Vietnam War, the 60s and 70s experience with military influence on American life. What lesson concerning coming out of the 60s do you think our listeners should know concerning the influences by the American military in our lives? Well, I think Vietnam should have taught us, you know, a big lesson about invading other countries that don't want us there in the first place. There are other motives sometimes, you know, like uh, going for resources like oil and tin, et cetera. There are hidden reasons and military industrial complex uh, profiting from these wars. So we have to be aware of all those things to make the changes. Also, unmitigated cost overruns and weapon systems and the lack of uh, congressional oversight of these weapons and the arms trade around the world. You know, one of the things we have to be aware of from Vietnam is are we still invading other countries that don't want us there? And the answer is yes. And, you know, Vietnam went for 10 years, a decade. And so what happens? We're in Afghanistan and we double the time there, 20 years. And at the end of these invasions, we're wondering, like, you know, what was it for? And look at the live sacrifice. You know, we're using the young to uh, fight these wars. And again, it's the military industrial complex that Eisenhower warned us against. And there they are you know, profiting from this at the expense of we, the people and the young people that are fighting these wars and laying down their lives for this. So we've got to turn that around. And one of the ways I suggested is converting our economy from a wartime economy to a peacetime economy, start to make peace profitable. You know, that's one way to do it. And also, of course, the consciousness. Let's learn from the past. Eisenhower warned us about the military industrial complex. We still don't get it. And he also said a brilliant thing. He said, told us in, in essence, he said, every dollar spent on these weapons is a theft from human needs. Well, last month, we interviewed Colonel Dr. Andrew Basevich on solutions to violence. Basevich is a professor emeritus of international relations and the history at Boston University. And he's the author of nine books on U.S. military mistakes and, and wars. Uh, we asked what he meant in military terms by his statement about, and this is a quote from him, giving peace or something like it a chance. Dr. Vasevich explained that he believes every citizen should be required to do a period of community service, whether it's in the military, the Peace Corps, social service, but something to benefit the nation as a citizen by giving back to the whole nation in some way. What do you feel today's generation can do to help with social justice and, and peace? Something like uh, Basevich's offers? What about nationwide service requirement? It's a good question. It looks tempting, you know, nationwide service. It sounds great. But I'm against any system, involuntary servitude. I think don't require it, but encourage it. It's a good thing to serve others. And Dr. King always said, let's ask yourself, how can I be of service to others? You know, Make it available. Make it available. Exactly, least. exactly. And, you know, when we give, we get. So let's promote the altruism for sure, but don't require it. And by the way, I think people ought to note that the Peace Corps from the time of President John F. Kennedy is still going. And there's another uh, alternative uh, venue to be of service. Right. Thanks to Sergeant Shriver. Yeah, that's right. Well, you write in your book that your parents were somewhat distant psychologically, even even abusive in some I'm ways. Glad you, uh, glad you said somewhat. It's <laughs> uh, kind of an understatement, but you know, whatever. Well, okay. <laughs> well, your mother, your mother actually uh, was uh, guilty of beating you. Your father, distant in, in uh, 
kind of more absorbed in his own work, oddly, as a family counselor, but in what you describe as apathy toward his own family. Those issues had to be difficult and traumatic now for you to understand and and, uh, maybe even now, but you credit that family experience with, with one that helps you know that, and this is a quote from you, you deeply detested both overt violence and what might be considered psychological violence. Yes. Most of us think of violence in terms of physical, but there's also uh, the violence of neglect. There's the violence of silent complicity, where we know something is wrong and we stand by or we pretend not to see it. And, uh, you know, all of us are guilty of that to some degree, but we can minimize it and have a consciousness of that violence. And I went from bystander to activist. But in my own family situation, the uh, when I was beaten by my mother and neglected uh, by my dad, how you react to it is an important thing. There are a lot of people, your listeners out there, they may have been in a troubled home or they came from that kind of background. And you can stay stuck and make a victim of yourself and relive it over and over. It's going to come back to you, definitely. It's going to haunt you. But you can move on from it. And, you know, there's a phrase that uh, helped me, and maybe this will help somebody else listening out there. It's called inspirational dissatisfaction. So what it means is you're hit by something that's really hard, but you don't let it stop you. And you let it inspire you to go that much further and you work that much harder. And then you appreciate everything that much more when you get moved past it. Francesco, you had a friend in high school and in college. His name was Jerry. The two of you had a really close connection, although you each had very different views on the violence of war. Jerry was committed to service in the military, and he served in Vietnam. You were committed to the idea of conscientious objection to the war and had even applied for CO status because of that, that opposition. You each had uh, were committed to your own view and were basically unrelenting on those. In one of Jerry's letters debating you, he said this. What I'm saying to you is that while we're on different sides, we're on the same side. That's a very reassuring in some ways, but kind of confusing, especially from someone that something about the divisiveness of war. So, so what was it in your relationship with Jerry that, that could be duplicated in today's world of, of high volume and disagreements, even, even violent ones? Well, excellent uh, question, because today uh, we're so divided. And like in the 60s, it was very polarized. And we need to come together again. America needs to come together again. We, we're all aware of our differences, right? But right. like Jerry and I, I felt like it was symbolic because we never let our political differences get in the way of our friendship because it was based on mutual respect. You know, uh, he would look at my view certainly as misguided and vice versa. But, you know, this is what the country needs to do, I think. We need to listen to each other more. You know, what can we learn from the other person? Ask ourselves that. And, you know, we learn we need to coexist. And, you know, that's a lesson for the whole country. You know, at the individual level, we need to do that. And at the international level with our foreign policy, we need to do that with other countries. So I guess in closing, I'd like to quote uh, Alice Walker because she has something that statement. I want to encourage people's activism out there. Uh, you know, don't give up. You know, a lot of people feel it's hopeless now and um, they've given up hope with nonviolence and just in general about us coming together again. But I think we, we can do it if we have the strong enough will. And Alice Walker said, you can do something, you know, you can make a difference. And the most common way people give up their power 
is by thinking that they don't have any. So let's, uh, you know, show kindness in our daily lives. And then uh, that creates, you know, it builds, it has a ripple effect. So um, I'm hoping that each of us and, you know, America can get back together and uh, we'll all work, do our best to create the ripples of hope out there. Francesco, we unfortunately are uh, at the end of our time uh, with you and, and our listeners. Would you, would you share any final thoughts with us? Uh, yes, I would say let's not give up hope. Let's come together again, show kindness in our daily lives. You know, everybody can do something. It doesn't have to be the big picture. You know, in our microcosm, we can all show kindness and respect to each other and listen to each other. And I guess if you don't mind, I do have a website. Is it okay if I mention it? Sure. Uh, it's called IRefuseToKill.com. And I uh, welcome uh, any comments from people on that website. I had another question I wanted to get in. Yeah. There are those who just as soon forget about the Vietnam War and the Vietnam era. Whitewash that period in U.S. history is evidenced by millions of civilians now sporting military camouflage and celebrating the U.S. military at every opportunity. The U.S. mainline media no longer discusses the Vietnam War. But in the late 60s and early 70s, the U.S. military had come under heavy scrutiny because the Vietnam War had turned into a mega disaster for both the U.S. military, those American soldiers who gave their last measure, and for the 1.3 million Vietnamese citizens who lost their lives as a result of the war. Many want to forget about the Vietnam War because the war and America's first military defeat does not fit into the narrative that is American exceptionalism. But there are lessons to be learned here, lessons that are applicable to conflicts now being waged by the U.S. military. So how do you apply those lessons from Vietnam, the conflicts now being waged in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, other places as well? There's got to be more accountability. And each of us as a citizen has got to speak to it. And also the Congress has to do a heck of a lot more. You know, these wars have been waged by presidents bypassing Congress with deception. Uh, sometimes the Congress finds out about what the president's been taking for military action a year later. You know, this is outrageous in a democracy. So we have to speak to it. And all of us have to, like I said, do what we can in our own microcosm. And the getting to uh, the control of the public view, you know, you brought up about the bypassing of the lessons of Vietnam and the debacle that it was and all the unnecessary loss of life with Americans. And I'm glad you mentioned the Asians too, you know, 50 58,000 Americans, 1.3 million Asians killed. If you don't feel that pain, you know, if you know somebody who's lost somebody, you know, they can bring it home. But that distortion, that's something the press has got to speak to, and we've got to demand more accountability. I experienced it as a peace activist. I mean, you look at back now on the 60s and the the propaganda that was put out to dismiss all the progressive changes that came out of the 60s and the activism of the civil rights and the peace movement. You know, that was a huge distortion. And today we're still fighting for the recognition of all those progressive changes. I mean, it was the second American revolution, really. You're talking about, you know, uh, civil rights, social justice, gay rights, environment, an Earth Day, lowering the voting age to 18, et cetera, et cetera. And the first time 
a young generation has stopped the war. You know, this all should be acknowledged. So we've got a long way to go. And, you know, the truth is not necessarily out there in the media. The media is oftentimes very negative, negative mindset. So we've got to get past that, stay positive within ourselves. Gandhi used to say, the governments hide the hearts of one people from another people. So keep the faith and assert your beliefs. And we're all in this together. Remember this, we're all in this together. We're essentially one family everywhere. So, ladies and gentlemen, we're, we're out of time. Our conversation has been with author and journalist Francesco da Vinci. We want to thank Francesco da Vinci for joining us here on Solution Trials as we explore more Solution Trials. Thank we you. Want, yeah. We want to thank you, our radio audience as well, for joining us on WFMP Radio. Folks, you can listen to Solutions to Violence live stream by visiting us at forwardradio.org and choosing Listen Live Now. Our program airs on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. This program featuring author and journalist Francesco da Vinci will be placed in our archives December 1st. To listen via our archives, visit us at forwardradio.org, choose Program Archives, and scroll down to the Solution to Violence program that features author and journalist Francesco da Vinci. If you'd like to share your thoughts about our discussion with Francesco da Vinci, you can reach us at the following email, solutiontoviolence18 at gmail.com. I'm Jim Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan, and our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Until next time, please keep the peace in your own personal way and help others do the same. Arlo Guthrie, and released in 1967, was not a song about Alice or her restaurant. It is a song that exposed the hypocrisy of the U.S. government's position as it related to the Vietnam War. We here at Solutions to Violence and our guest today, Francesco da Vinci, understand the hypocrisy as evident by our stands against violence and evident by da Vinci's stand against the Vietnam War and the fact that da Vinci was willing to go to jail rather than serve in a military that was waged an immoral war. Welcome, friends. We are Forward Radio, WFMPLP 106.5 FM. I'm Jamie McMillan here with co-host Jim Johnson. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of our guests, not the station. If you would like to share your views, you may contact us by sending us an email to solutions to violence18 at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. If you enjoyed last week's broadcast, you know you're going to enjoy our broadcast today. Our guest today is Francesco da Vinci, a Los Angeles-based journalist, book author, and nonviolent activist. As a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War, he was threatened with a five-year prison term for refusing induction. After three years on appeal, he won his case the same year that Muhammad Ali won his case in 1971. Raised by pacifist parents, Francesco felt hell to take a stand against the war. He also founded Nonviolent Action, NVA, in 1970, a peace campaign in San Diego, and another, the draft project that reached the halls of Congress with the help of Senator George McGovern. As the Vietnam War escalated in 1960s, so did Francesco Vincent activism against violence. In the late 60s, Francesco participated in the March on Pentagon Poor People's Campaign and the march at the People's Park at San Diego. He helped organize the Veterans Moratorium. In 1968, Da Vinci filed for 
conscientious objector status. While his CO case was on appeal, he worked with farm work, then founded a peace organization group in San Diego called Nonviolent Action. Today, Francesco speaks on the urgent need to counter systems of violence by developing a peace economy and building a culture of nonviolence. His suggestions for nonviolent action are aimed at both the individual and societal levels. In his talks, Francesco reminds us that we can't become immobilized in these difficult and divided times. Achieving solutions start with each of us in our own microcosm. Even simply daily acts of kindness add up. If we take that attitude, then as Gandhi said, each of us can be the chain. Francesco has published his book, I Refuse to Kill, My Path to Nonviolent Action in the 1960s. It documents his conscientious objection and honors COs throughout American history. Welcome, Francesco. Thank you. Francesco, we met last on Solutions to Violence uh, a little over a year ago, in August of 2020. Uh, that time you told us that you were working on a book. You have since published that book. The title, as I mentioned uh, in your bio, is I Refuse to Kill My Path to Nonviolent Action in the 60s. And here it is. Thank you. But uh, I was able to work (laughs) and I've enjoyed reading it. So why did you feel you needed to write this book? Well, I was going through a major stress facing the draft and facing the war. And it was really on a personal level, therapeutic for me to put everything down. I never thought it would be a book, but it was important to me to document my life in the 60s. And later I decided, you know, with everything I went through, I wanted to honor conscientious objectors. And I found out that very few people understood what conscientious objectors were and how, how much they sacrificed to take their stand for nonviolence. I mean, they were slandered. Uh, They were tortured. They were sent to the worst prisons uh, in America and even uh, killed sometimes. So I thought it was way overdue that we honor these people for their bravery. Uh Change directions a little bit here. The Selective Service System was created by President Franklin Roosevelt in 1940 for the purpose of running a peacetime draft. The Selective Service Act of 1948 set up many of the regulations and deferments used during the Vietnam era. And that era lasted until 1969. The Selective Service Act became known as, quote, the draft, end quote. And it was enforced by President Richard Nixon. For our listeners who did not live through the 60s or the 70s, give us an idea of what the draft meant to an 18-year-old who grew up in that era. Well, it was very scary stuff. I mean, the war was raging, you know, from 1964. Ironically, LBJ came in as the peace candidate, but immediately escalated the war. So my generation felt deceived, number one. Number two, the draft was there. And the message essentially was your life is not your own. And he had talked about all these great social programs that he was going to implement. And then it was, uh, they were, you know, mitigated. They were by the, the war that he constantly escalated. So, you know, as an 18-year-old, you had to think, well, am I going to Vietnam? I'm totally against the draft, but one positive effect that it had for me, a silver lining, was that it forced me to look at my values and to articulate my beliefs in nonviolence. I was raised with a pacifist family, but I never thought about putting down on paper, you know, what my views were and and having a real sense of what I really stood for. So um, the process began with, you know, you have to register with the draft at 18 and they threaten you. At that time, it was a, they threaten you with a $10,000 fine and or five years in prison. 
So, uh, and I registered late. So uh, I was under the gun, so to speak. And uh, I registered. And then I, I began to clarify for myself about what I really believed in. And I had to ask myself, you know, are you really willing to be trained to kill in the military? Are you willing to fight in this war that at best looks misguided? So I had been raised with a big conflict inside. I had turmoil because in my family, it was a pacifist family. We were taught to look at everyone in the world as essentially one family. Yeah, there were draft age young men who were, for various reasons, claimed that they would not serve in the military and, and be trained to kill because of their religious beliefs or, or some non-religious set of ethics. You were one of those youngsters who cited non-religious set uh, of ethics. You claimed the status of CO, conscientious objector. Draft dodger was a derogatory term that, that developed to identify the young people who, who did not want to serve uh, and kill. But there is a formal term identifying the draft dodger. And that was very different from what those, that derogatory term meant. What, what was that difference? Well, it was used really to slander conscientious objectors. And the public was totally confused about the concept because if you applied as a conscientious objector, you were doing the opposite of dodging the draft. Because let's be clear, you know, when you face the draft, you had the choice of you could you could go to Canada, you could fake your way out of the draft. But if you were a conscientious objector, you faced the draft head on. You had to clarify to your draft board how sincere you were about your beliefs. And if they did not recognize you at your draft board, you willingly went to prison. That's not draft dodging. So today, to this day, people still associate conscientious objection with draft dodging. Often people would say to me when they heard I was a CO, they would say, well, how did you get out of it? Because they think it's evading the draft, but it isn't. It's facing it straight on. And like I said, you willingly go to prison if you're not recognized. Right. What difference did that have to do with the choice that you made about the Vietnam War? Well, the thing that made it particularly difficult with uh, me making this choice for the Vietnam War was that my philosophy that I had to relay to my draft board was non-religious but spiritual. And that was outside the box of my Virginia draft board, which, you know, let me uh, make a statement here about the inherent unfairness of the draft in regard to where you're geographically from. Because if you're from, you know, a liberal politically area, say like the Bay Area of San Francisco, uh, you have a much better chance of being recognized as a CEO than you do in the South or a draft board like mine in Virginia that was strongly pro-war. So there's an inherent unfairness about where you're from. So when I had to present to my draft board that my religion was essentially spiritual but non-religious, it was so unconventional to them that they looked at it in terms of Christianity, period, and then second, uh, the teachings of Jesus, and, and also how often you went to church. So if you were outside those parameters, it was very difficult. Your case was twice as hard. Right. Well, just to clarify, Jim and I are both in that, and you're the same generation. We uh -huh. experienced a lot of that. As a matter of fact, when I went to register for the, the draft, the selective service, I was confronted by the lady who's in charge uh, because she said I was late and she threatened to, to, uh, <laughs> to draft me right there. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> she 
she had me going, but she didn't. Wow. She didn't draft. Can I, I would like to add something to, that was uh, on the humorous note with this. You know, if you did belong to an organized religion, like I said, you had a better chance of being recognized. So my parents didn't want to see me to go to prison and they wanted me to manipulate my way out of the draft or go to Canada. Like my, my girlfriend felt the same way. But my dad would constantly, or she, he said, you know, you've got an Italian last name, Francesco da Vinci. You know, everybody's going to assume you're a Catholic. So why don't you temporarily become Catholic? <laughs> but I, yeah. didn't, I didn't do it. But anyhow, that's what we were faced with. Yeah. So the other causes or options for potential draftees to obtain a deferment and classification as a CO, what are some of those other options? Well, you had student deferment. There were a lot of people who wanted to ride out the draft with a student deferment, keep delaying, delaying, delaying. And then at 26, you're no longer eligible for the draft. But again, this is another example of how COs take a, a strong stand. If you apply as a CO, people, my draft board even said to me in, when I had the interview, which is more like an interrogation, they said, uh, aren't you taking the easy way out as a CO? You know, there's nothing harder than going through the Alice in Wonderland process of CO. So, you know, when I stated all my beliefs and I said, I'm giving up my student deferment to make this stand, Richard Dreyfus, the actor, did the same thing. He was a conscientious objector as well. And when Richard and I applied as COs while going to college, it's like tearing your student deferment in half, you know, and tearing it up and throwing it away because you're risking prison. So mm -hmm. students deferment was a, another one. I've, I've got to tell you this story that, that is a true story with my brother because the options were, you know, you could stall the draft board and the lawyer, many of the lawyers, they were dedicated, they volunteered for free and they didn't want to see these young men going to prison, going to war that they didn't believe in. And so they would give free down, draft counseling. They would help sometimes uh, for people to stall. That's not conscientious objection, of course, but they would help many people. And some people like my brother, they would uh, fake their way out. And my brother uh, pretended to be psychotic for the draft board. And we were at a restaurant and my brother announces to me, he says, why don't you be sensible and do what I do because I'm gonna get a psychiatric and I said, you're kidding. He said, no, no, I've got this, got this down. And in the middle of the restaurant, he stands up and he tilts his head sideways and he starts switching his eyes and he turns in a slow circle. And now everybody in the restaurant is staring at him. And, you know, it was like an Academy Award performance. And he did get his deferment that way. But, uh, you know, it, it was uh, that was my brother. And that was the way he and a lot of other CEO, uh, not CEOs, but uh, people fake their way out. But the CEOs took the stand and were direct with their draft board on their philosophy of nonviolence, even at the risk of prison. Well, what was the process for applying and, and being approved by as a CEO? Well, you, you had to state your beliefs, which is very hard. You know, a lot of us carry our beliefs inside, but if we were asked to articulate verbally or to put them down on paper, it's not an easy thing to do. And an amusing thing about the old CO form in Virginia and the early ones, 150 form it was called, was the draft boards made it in black and white. And the lead question was like, do you believe in God? Yes or no? <laughs> you know, they oversimplify these complex things because they saw things in black and white. So it wasn't easy. And 
The other thing you would do is you would cite, you would get letters of support from people that knew you to attest the sincerity of your beliefs. And the other thing was they would ask you like influences, whether your parents were an influence or what your role models were. And in my case, you know, they, in Virginia, they wanted to hear the likes of Robert E. Lee. But in my case, it was Gandhi and Einstein and Cesar Chavez and Dr. King. And uh, none of these people went over big with my Virginia draft board. So again, that made uh, the case difficult. But those were the kinds of things you had to do to be recognized as a CEO. And one thing I learned, if somebody really disagreed with you, but they said they recognized you were sincere, like my best buddy served in the Navy in Vietnam, he knew how sincere I was, and he wrote a letter of support. And of course, that's usually more helpful because the draft board sees that even though this person disagrees with you, obviously you're sincere about your beliefs. Okay, so let's uh, bring this back into the 21st century, this discussion here. Since the military draft was briefly considered by some as support for the U.S. war in Iraq and Afghanistan, the draft seems to have been dropped from consideration, at least for the current military engagements. What do you think of efforts to bring back the draft? And why do you think it's failed to gain any traction in Congress, at least at, at this point? Well, in my view, the draft was wrong in the past. The draft is wrong in the present and it's wrong in the future. We need to abolish it, in my view, because it's basically a system of involuntary servitude. And that's clearly undemocratic and un-American. You know, we stand for individual freedom and the draft is the, the opposite. So I say get rid of involuntary servitude especially, you know, considering all the injustice that was done to minorities during from the 60s on, who didn't really, weren't familiar with the draft laws, who is really, uh, you need legal counsel, but especially minorities, they were used way beyond proportion in the front lines of Vietnam, they were drafted, they didn't know their rights. And, you know, here's a, a sad and tragic fact, but in Vietnam, the deaths that happened. 61% of those killed in Vietnam were under the age of 21. And, you know, to think about the draft forcing people to be trained to kill when it, again, would, you know, many, it was against their, their basic beliefs were to fight in a misguided war like Vietnam. You know, it's a, it's a national tragedy. So hopefully, you know, we need to learn from that and not to try to reform the draft. The best thing we can do with the draft is to abolish it once and for all, in my view. Yeah, but Francesco, you know, there, there are some liberals, in fact, who claim maybe we should bring the draft back because when there is a draft here in this country, people are much more aware of the war that's going on and much more likely to oppose that war. And that'll bring people out into the streets and they'll be demonstrations, and the demonstrations may lead to, like eventually happened in Vietnam, stopping the war. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up, because that's an excellent point. Uh, and uh, as a peace activist in the 60s, I, I heard this argument many times. And my counter was, you know, I don't, I don't think we should be willing to sacrifice lives for the sake of politicizing people. So uh, my feeling is, you know, recognize it, that it's inherently uh, taking lives, that uh, unnecessary lives, and that's why we should uh, abolish the draft. You know, it's means and ends again. You know, some people say, like, 
okay, if it helps the cause and a bigger picture, bring back the draft. And then, but the cost of that is people are drafted against their will and they end up dying in a war that they don't believe in. So for my, my own position is don't use the draft to politicize people. Okay, okay. But now we see the success of the Me Too movement and other women's rights campaign for equal rights, women who have won the right to serve in the military with equal opportunities for advancement, specialties training, and, and more. As any male recruit, combat jobs and training is not excluded for women. With these changes, there has been some debate about the need for a, quote, a change of culture, end quote. As Elizabeth Torball points out in her book, Join Force Quarterly, 88, with, within all branches of the military. So what do you think of the efforts to bring back the draft and expand it to women? Because that's what's now happening in Congress. Yeah, well, I think, of course, women should have the right to serve. But I don't believe in the draft, period. So when people talk about reforming the draft or bringing women in, you know, I, I think it's the big picture is to get rid of the draft. But of course, we still have a long way to go for women's rights in general, not just in terms of the military, but equal opportunity. We're still, you know, we've got a long way to go. And I don't support the draft as a modified draft. One thing I think we ought to be aware of is that the selective service system, the draft, in other words, is using this banner of women's rights to entice women to uh, have by the myth that if you're a strong woman, you know, you go into the military and that'll show that you're a strong woman. You know, they're using that uh, the women's rights cause to increase enrollment in the military and in the draft. So I think we ought to be aware of that. But of course, women should have the right to serve, but uh, I'm against the draft in general. So in 2015, uh, the U.S. Army Training Doctrine Command Analysis Center published gender integration study. Quote, male soldiers are afraid of lowered physical standards, increased sexual assault and harassment, reduced readiness, and destruction of the masculine culture or brotherhood. Oh, my However, God. Yeah. So, how Excuse I'm, me, Jim, uh, while I roll my eyes. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I hear you. But much of what is discussed here goes beyond the thoughts and attitudes about women integrating into jobs and previously closed military occupational specialties. A resource here that we're using is Women Regardless, Understanding Gender Bias in U.S. Military Integration by Elizabeth Torbor, National Defense University Press. So what are your thoughts on the place of women in the military now, women that are there serving serving their country. Well, this notion of destroying the masculinity culture of brotherhood, you know, is outrageous. You know, this has been the problem. Uh, this boys club mentality, you know, this is what keeps women subjugated. I, I admire Ruth Bader Ginsburg so much for bringing attention to this. And I love her quote when she says, oh, well, if you'd like to help us, uh, start by taking your foot off our necks. <laughs> you know, you know, it, it's, this, this boys club stuff is, is, should be way in the past. We're still dealing with it now. And the idea is equality. You know, that's what, it's so basic. It's hard to understand why we're still grappling with this, this culture of brotherhood and the, the boys club stuff. You know, let it go. 
it was a mistake in the past. It's a mistake now. So let's let's uh, progress. You know, it took a, as long as uh, 1920 before women have the even have the right to vote. You know, so let's let's move on. And this reminds me, you know, of the the kind of uh, stuff that the COs have gone through. You know, with the, the you know the image stuff about not being manly enough. You know, as a CO was painted as weak and cowardly and sissy. Uh, this and the military was painted as super macho. And this is all myth stuff, you know, so let's move past it and uh, look at brothers and sisters as equals. Yeah. What, what point did you select nonviolence as a cause in, in your life? Well, the draft certainly was a big wake up call for me. In the beginning, I went from total bystander. I was raised in a wealthy family. I was oblivious to social issues. I was raised in a segregated neighborhood. I don't think I ever saw one black in my high school in four years in Virginia. So the draft was like a wake up call for me to start thinking about these issues, social justice and the drafting were the larger issues. And, you know, the civil rights and the peace movement. I looked at them a little bit like, you know, these people are making trouble in the beginning. And then I saw all this made sense and I started to study nonviolence. So I would say the draft was a was a big wake up call. And it made me realize that, you know, what have I been doing to help? Nothing. And if you're silent, you're really complicit with the problems. Another factor was um, when you asked about nonviolence coming in and my change, Vietnam was the first war that was widely televised and it brought the horrors of the war right into our living rooms. Right. And uh, so, you know, it was no longer just the PR glorification of war. There were the horrors, you know, you saw children uh, that were napalmed, et cetera. And then another influence for me personally was Dr. King and Muhammad Ali. I mean, Dr. King had the guts to stand up and say, I encourage, let's encourage conscientious objection in our young people. And he took the heat for that. You know, he was, oh, he was viciously attacked for that. Uh, Even people that were in the civil rights movement, many of them turned against him for making that kind of a statement. And then Muhammad (laughs) Ali, what's that? Andrew Young, yeah. Yeah, Andrew Young. Director of NAACP. Exactly. And uh, Muhammad Ali in 1967, when he refused induction in Houston, you know, look at the hate that he experienced. They took away his heavyweight title that he earned, you know, this crazy. And he made that tremendous sacrifice. He faced a five-year prison term and he stayed with it. Those two individuals, brave individuals, were uh, role models for me and they influenced me. And, you know, they... One big thing, you know, we have to realize when people take those kind of stands, those are the people that make saying no to war honorable. And that's what we need more of a culture today that says saying no to war can be honorable. You know, it's not just the myth of, oh, they're a shirker. Let's not make those assumptions. And Dr. King and Muhammad Ali, you know, if young people are looking for models, those are two great individuals to study today. Sure. You became a conscientious objector, much about pacifism and nonviolence. How do you apply that nonviolence to your life in the 60s and the 70s? Well, How I start relate yeah. to that cause of nonviolence today. Sure. Well, um, I, you know, Gandhi would always say, start with yourself. You know, he said, I, I won't wait to convert the whole of society to my point of view. I'll straight away make a beginning with myself. So I had to look at myself in the mirror. And then I started reading about nonviolence. And I read Gandhi's autobiography, etc. And I saw basic principles that made a lot of sense to me, like one of the most valuable, I think, principles in nonviolence is means and ends, you know, make the way you do something just as important as what you want. 
And so if we apply that to an individual level and to a national level, I mean, that makes all, it invalidates all our invasion wars around the world, you know, because we talk about peace and spreading democracy. Well, you know, we've got to make it consistent with our ideals. And that's a direct contradiction. And then I started speaking out in classes. That was one way I applied it. At, I was going to the University of Maryland. But you got to remember in those times, uh, as you, uh, you full well know, I'm sure, it was so polarized. There was a lot of hate out there. And if you spoke against the war in the beginning of the 60s, you know, mid-60s, boy, you were ostracized like nobody's business. I remember I was in classes of like over 100 students, and I would be the only one calling for an immediate withdrawal from Vietnam. And there were all kinds of names I was called for doing that. So um, Think of. that was, that was uh, you know, it was very scary at first. I can remember sweaty palms and all that to do it. But gradually, you know, when you assert who you really are and make your words and your thoughts and your actions harmonious, uh, you would develop self-confidence. And it made me stronger as a nonviolent activist eventually. Right. Called a communist in any number. Yeah. Of yeah. Kami Pinko, all that. Yeah. And, you know, Joan Baez has a great quote. She said, you know, about uh, when people deride nonviolence as being impractical and all that. She said, you know, nonviolence is a flop. The only bigger flop is violence. Mm -hmm. So there are many lessons here, Francesco, for many of us. We have learned from the events surrounding the Vietnam War, the 60s and 70s experience with military influence on American life. What lesson concerning coming out of the 60s do you think our listeners should know concerning the influences by the American military in our lives? Well, I think Vietnam should have taught us, you know, a big lesson about invading other countries that don't want us there in the first place. There are other motives sometimes, you know, like uh, going for resources like oil and tin, etc. There are hidden reasons and military industrial complex uh, profiting from these wars. So we have to be aware of all those things to make the changes. Also, unmitigated cost overruns and weapon systems and the lack of uh, congressional oversight of these weapons and the arms trade around the world. You know, one of the things we have to be aware of from Vietnam is, are we still invading other countries that don't want us there? And the answer is yes. And, you know, Vietnam went for 10 years, a decade. And so what happens? We're in Afghanistan and we double the time there, 20 years. And at the end of these invasions, we're wondering, like, you know, what was it for? And look at the live sacrifice. You know, we're using the young to uh, fight these wars. And again, it's the military industrial complex that Eisenhower warned us against. And there they are, you know, profiting from this at the expense of we, the people and the young people that are fighting these wars and laying down their lives for this. So we've got to turn that around. And one of the ways I suggested is converting our economy from a wartime economy to a peacetime economy. Start to make peace profitable. You know, that's one way to do it. And also, of course, the consciousness. Let's learn from the past. Eisenhower warned us about the military industrial complex. We still don't get it. And he also said a brilliant thing. He said, told us in, in essence, he said, every dollar spent on these weapons is a theft from human needs. Well, last month, we interviewed Colonel Dr. Andrew Basevich on Solutions to Violence. Basevich is the Professor Emeritus of International Relations and the History at Boston University, and he's the author of nine books on U.S. military mistakes and, and wars. 
uh, we asked what he meant in military terms by his statement about, and this is a quote from him, giving peace or something like it a chance. Dr. Vasevich explained that he believes every citizen should be required to do a period of community service, whether it's in the military, the Peace Corps, social service, but something to benefit the nation as a citizen by giving back to the whole nation in some way. What do you feel today's generation can do to help with social justice and, and peace? Something like uh, Basovich's offers? What about nationwide service requirements? It's a good question. It looks tempting, you know, nationwide service. It sounds great. But I'm against any system, involuntary servitude. I think don't require it, but encourage it. It's a good thing to serve others. And Dr. King always said, let's ask yourself, how can I be of service to others? You know, Make it available. Make it available exactly, least. exactly. And, you know, when we give, we get. So let's promote the altruism for sure, but don't require it. And by the way, I think people ought to note that the Peace Corps from the time of President John F. Kennedy is still going. And there's another uh, alternative uh, venue to be of service. Right. Thanks to Sergeant Shriver. Yeah, that's right. Well, you write in your book that your parents were somewhat distant psychologically, even even abusive in some well, ways. Glad you, glad you said somewhat. <laughs> It's <laughs> uh, kind of an understatement, but you know, whatever. Well, okay. <laughs> well, your mother, your mother actually uh, was uh, guilty of beating you. Your father, distant and in, in, uh, kind of more absorbed in his own work, oddly as a family counselor, but in what you describe as apathy toward his own family. Yes. Those issues had to be difficult and traumatic. Now, for you to understand and and. Uh, maybe even now, but you credit that family experience with, with one that helps you know that, and this is a quote from you, you deeply detested both overt violence and what might be considered psychological violence. Yes. Most of us think of violence in terms of physical, but there's also uh, the violence of neglect. There's the violence of silent complicity, where we know something is wrong and we stand by or we pretend not to see it. And, uh, you know, all of us are guilty of that to some degree, but we can minimize it and have a consciousness of that violence. And I went from bystander to activist, but in my own family situation, the uh, when I was beaten by my mother and neglected uh, by my dad, how you react to it is an important thing. There are a lot of people, your listeners out there, they may have uh, be in a troubled home or they came from that kind of background and you can stay stuck and make a victim of yourself and relive it over and over. It's going to come back to you. Definitely. It's going to haunt you, but you can move on from it. And, you know, there's a phrase that uh, helped me, and maybe this will help somebody else listening out there. It's called inspirational dissatisfaction. So what it means is you're hit by something that's really hard, but you don't let it stop you. And you let it inspire you to go that much further and you work that much harder. And then you appreciate everything that much more when you get moved past it. Francesco, you had a friend in high school and in college. His name was Jerry. The two of you had a really close connection, although you each had very different views on the violence of war. Jerry was committed to service in the military, and he served in Vietnam. You were committed to the idea of conscientious objection to the war and had even applied for CO status because of that, that opposition. You each had uh, were committed to your own view and were basically unrelenting on those. In one of Jerry's letters debating you, he said this. What I'm saying to you is that while we're on different sides, 
we're on the same side. That's a very reassuring in some ways, but kind of confusing, especially from someone that something about the divisiveness of war. So, so what was it in your relationship with Jerry that, that could be duplicated in today's world of, of high volume and disagreements, even, even violent ones? Well, excellent uh, question, because today uh, we're so divided. And like in the 60s, it was very polarized. And we need to come together again. America needs to come together again. We, we're all aware of our differences, right? But right. like Jerry and I, I felt like it was symbolic because we never let our political differences get in the way of our friendship because it was based on mutual respect. You know, uh, he would look at my view certainly as misguided and vice versa. But, you know, this is what the country needs to do, I think. We need to listen to each other more. You know, what can we learn from the other person? Ask ourselves that. And, you know, we learn we need to coexist. And, you know, that's a lesson for the whole country. You know, at the individual level, we need to do that. And at the international level with our foreign policy, we need to do that with other countries. So I guess in closing, I'd like to quote uh, Alice Walker because she has something that statement. I want to encourage people's activism out there. Uh, you know, don't give up. You know, a lot of people feel it's hopeless now and um, they've given up hope with nonviolence and just in general about us coming together again. But I think we, we can do it if we have the strong enough will. And Alice Walker said, you can do something, you know, you can make a difference. And the most common way people give up their power is by thinking that they don't have any. So let's, uh, you know, show kindness in our daily lives. And then uh, that creates, you know, it builds, it has a ripple effect. So um, I'm hoping that each of us and, you know, America can get back together and uh, we'll all work, do our best to create the ripples of hope out there. Francesco, we unfortunately are uh, at the end of our time uh, with you and, and our listeners. Would you, would you share any final thoughts with us? Uh, yes, I would say let's not give up hope. Let's come together again, show kindness in our daily lives. You know, everybody can do something. It doesn't have to be the big picture. You know, in our microcosm, we can all show kindness and respect to each other and listen to each other. And I guess if you don't mind, I do have a website. Is it okay if I mention it? Sure. Uh, it's called IRefuseToKill.com. And I uh, welcome uh, any comments from people on that website. I had another question I wanted to get in. Yeah. There are those who just as soon forget about the Vietnam War and the Vietnam era. Whitewash that period in U.S. history is evidenced by millions of civilians now sporting military camouflage and celebrating the U.S. military at every opportunity. The U.S. mainline media no longer discusses the Vietnam War. But in the late 60s and early 70s, the U.S. military had come under heavy scrutiny because the Vietnam War had turned into a mega disaster for both the U.S. military, those American soldiers who gave their last measure, and for the 1.3 million Vietnamese citizens who lost their lives as a result of the war. Many want to forget about the Vietnam War because the war and America's first military defeat does not fit into the narrative that is American exceptionalism. 
But there are lessons to be learned here, lessons that are applicable to conflicts now being waged by the U.S. military. So how do you apply those lessons from Vietnam, the conflicts now being waged in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, other places as well? There's got to be more accountability. And each of us as a citizen has got to speak to it. And also the Congress has to do a heck of a lot more. You know, these wars have been waged by presidents bypassing Congress with deception. Uh, Sometimes the Congress finds out about what the president's been taking for military action a year later. You know, this is outrageous in a democracy. So we have to speak to it. And all of us have to, like I said, do what we can in our own microcosm. And getting to uh, the control of the public view. You know, you brought up about the bypassing of the lessons of Vietnam and the debacle that it was and all the unnecessary loss of life with Americans. And I'm glad you mentioned the Asians too. You know, 58,000 Americans, 1.3 million Asians killed. If you don't feel that pain, you know, if you know somebody who's lost somebody, you know, they can bring it home. But that distortion, that's something the press has got to speak to and we've got to demand more accountability. I experienced it as a peace activists. I mean, you look at back now on the 60s and the the propaganda that was put out to dismiss all the progressive changes that came out of the 60s and the activism of the civil rights and the peace movement. You know, that was a huge distortion. And today we're still fighting for the recognition of all those progressive changes. I mean, it was the second American revolution, really. You're talking about, you know, uh, civil rights, social justice, gay rights, environment, an Earth Day, lowering the voting age to 18, et cetera, et cetera. And the first time a young generation has stopped the war. You know, this all should be acknowledged. So we've got a long way to go. And, you know, the truth is not necessarily out there in the media. The media is oftentimes very negative, negative mindset. So we've got to get past that, stay positive within ourselves. Gandhi used to say, the governments hide the hearts of one people from another people. So keep the faith and assert your beliefs. And we're all in this together. Remember this, we're all in this together. We're essentially one family everywhere. So, ladies and gentlemen, we're, we're out of time. Our conversation has been with author and journalist Francesco da Vinci. We want to thank Francesco da Vinci for joining us here on Solution Grounds as we explore more Solution Grounds. Thank we you. Want, yeah. We want to thank you, our radio audience as well, for joining us on WFMP Radio. Folks, you can listen to Solution to Violence live stream by visiting us at forwardradio.org and choosing Listen Live Now. Our program airs on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. This program featuring author and journalist Francesco da Vinci will be placed in our archives December 1st. To listen via our archives, visit us at forwardradio.org, choose Program Archives, and scroll down to the Solutions to Violence program that features author and journalist Francesco da Vinci. If you'd like to share your thoughts about our discussion with Francesco da Vinci, you can reach us at the following email, solutionsofviolence18 at gmail.com. I'm Jim Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan, and our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Until next time, please keep the peace in your own personal way and help others do the same.